Did I get anybody? Did y'all think like, oh, he's about to share some drama? No. I've deceived myself, and I'm very upset with the Braves. Georgia, I've kind of gotten used to, but I thought this year was different. And I let some anger out during bath time with my girls because the Braves disappointed me once again. And I might have ripped rubber bands out of their hair and said, I'm just kidding, I didn't really. Don't worry, don't call defects. I was just upset because the Braves. So tonight we're going to have a fun time at Chili Chowdown, and then we're going to all go watch the Braves, hopefully. If you don't know who the Braves are, uh, man, go check out Creekstone or Christ Family. Um, if you don't watch the Braves, you should. You can still be saved through this process and watch them tonight and win. But, but in all seriousness, all joking aside, um, so, something we do as human beings is deceive ourselves. Like there's a quote I heard a few years ago that's just always stuck with me, that no one lies to you like you do. Did y'all catch that? No one else lies to you like you do. So, so the world is constantly trying to deceive us, um, marketing employees, all these different things. But, but at the end of the day, there's this self-deception that goes on within our hearts that, that we are always constantly trying to deceive ourselves, making ourselves feel better, making ourselves think about this situation differently. And, and so no one lies to you like you. But we're going to see this morning through the text, through Hebrews 3, This deception is a reality, but it has weighty consequences. That if we're not gut-level honest about who we are, maybe more importantly, who we're not, then this deception and this temptation to to bloody up the water, muddy up, not bloody up, muddy up the waters here could read to, for the Israelites, it was unrest, but, but could lead to some really dangerous places for us. So, so let us read this morning Hebrews 3. We're supposed to be in 7 through 19, but, but I'm going to back it up a little bit to verse 5 just to make sure we understand some context. And then we'll pray and then we'll dive straight into it. Hebrews 3, we're going to pick it up in verse 5. Hebrews 3, verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the last day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be any in you of evil, excuse me, any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Verse 16, for who were those who had heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? 
And to whom did he swear that they would never, they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. So let us pray today, church. Father, would you speak to us through your words? Would we learn from the examples of not only the Israelites, but also the church in Rome, to the Hebrews that were receiving this sermon? And Father, would we not leave this text the same? Would we not leave this room the same, Father? But would you redeem us? Would you show us the deception in our hearts and allow us to correct it? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Now, just a quick background on, on kind of two things. One, uh, as we've been walking through Hebrews, just to make sure we're all on the same page, and, and if this sounds repetitious, we'll probably say this almost every Sunday because we have new people coming in. Um, this was a sermon. This was made to um, listen with your ears, not necessarily read with your eyes. It was written to a house church in Rome. And now in this time period, it was kind of right when, when Rome was getting, um, ramping up their persecution of the Christians within Rome. Um, and it's only a few short short years before martyrdom was rampant in Rome underneath Nero. So, so here are these Jewish Christians, those that had grown up in the Jewish tradition, uh, Jewish faith, but now they have followed Christ. So they don't really have a home with their Jewish families anymore because they've cast them out and they're not really welcomed by Rome because they've casted them out. So they're, they're isolated within their own self in their struggling. And they see that persecution is becoming rampant, and they know what's on the horizon, which is straight out martyrdom. So this is who it's written to, and this is who it's being preached to. So you might hear me refer to a preacher or author, because we don't clearly know exactly who the writer of Hebrews was, even though we have our theories. So they're writing to a group of Jewish Christians, which makes sense because what we're about to read here uh, is the quotes. If you, I don't know if your Bible's like mine, but it has subsets. Well, this is all straight out of Psalm 95, which for them would have been such a relaxing and noticeable text to quote. Because Psalm 95, 7 uh, through 11, but primarily 7, was the call to worship that they would hear every Sabbath evening in the synagogue. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. That would be something that they would say every single time that they would gather within the synagogue. The first thing, so we get up and we have a time of scripture and then prayer. They would get up and this would be the first thing they would say. So by this author, this preacher quoting Psalm 95, they were already familiar with it. And he goes into the history lesson of these people's people. Uh, like these were their forefathers. These were these ancestors that had came out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the promised land. So, so all that they're quoting, all that they're talking about is very familiar to them. But let's just kind of make a framework real quick of the argument. That 1.5 million, we'll get into more details in a second. 1.5 million people, around 600,000 men, came out of Egypt, came out of slavery into the promised land. Two of those, two made it into the promised land, made it into God's rest. Two, the odds aren't good, 1.5 million to two. Two heeded God's warning, two understand the deception and the temptation that was at play. And here's what we're going to see this morning. 
The temptation and deception of unbelief is knocking on all of our doors. And it's holding many of us captive right now and we don't even see it. Let me repeat that one more time. The temptation and deception of unbelief, of unbelief, if you look at the end of chapter 3, verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The temptation, the deception of unbelief is knocking on all of our doors and it's holding many of us captive right now and we don't even see it. So, so here's what I need us to see straight out the gate. This was written to Christians. This is written to Christians, to believers. There's going to be often in this text, we're going to go, man, that makes a lot of sense for the world. That makes a lot of sense for non-believers. No, 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 church. He's talking to us as Christians. The temptation to deceive ourselves into unbelief is right in our midst right now, and we may not see it. It's probable that we don't see it, that we are deceiving ourselves into unbelief and we don't even recognize it. Because the temptation here is to throw a bunch of shade at the Israelites. You fools, how did you not see it? To throw a bunch of shade at the Israelites, or the Hebrews. You fools, how could you not see it? Or we could take that the other way and go, man, there was some true deception going on, so God, would you open up our eyes to see it? Would you help us to understand it? So I just kind of want to look at, there, there's so much. I mean, as I was writing this sermon, really this could be three, four sermons if we wanted to. I'm going to cram it into one because I love you and you love me and it's going to be 35 minutes or so. I also forgot to stop, start the clock, so it's going to be 35 minutes, which actually means probably an hour, but I digress. Let's look at verse 7 because there's something really important sidebar that I want us to see before we jump into the overarching principles that we're going to draw out of this text. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, now, now we need to stop there because that is not some insignificant detail that, that the author just throws in. This is good news for, news for us. Good news for us. That's the first time I've ever said nude on stage. Good news for us because this is Holy Spirit inspired. That we can take scripture and not fall into the fallacy, because here's a deception, here's a temptation into unbelief, that this was just written by men, that this means nothing, that this carries no weight because a bunch of sinful pagan men wrote this. But the author of Hebrews goes, no, no, no. All of this was Holy Spirit inspired through men, which changes the way that we look at this book, that changes the way that we read this letter because this was Holy Spirit inspired. It is never ending. So the same truths that were true for the Hebrews about 2,000 years ago are true for us today. And the same lessons that the Israelites learned and Moses wrote down are true for us today because they're Spirit inspired. And that should be good news for us. But now, based on that, I just want to draw three, uh, I say quick, but three massive principles out of this text for us to see and, and kind of play with. And, and the idea that we're all being deceived. They were all being led away. They're all being tempted into unbelief. 
And, and here's one way, but here's just kind of the overarching argument here, because last week we preached through verses one through six, and one of the main points there was for us to consider Jesus, consider all that Jesus had done, all that Jesus will continue to do on our behalf, consider Jesus. One of the most important questions you could ever ask yourself is, who is Jesus Christ? And what has he done? That is the gospel. Consider Jesus. And so the rest of this text is just elaborating on that first massive question of consideration. But look with me at verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now skip down real quick. Look with me at verse 14. Because the, the author, the preacher, says something very similar here. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now if we read these wrongly, if we read these wrongly, here's the conclusion that we can come to. That we can lose our salvation. That if we don't hold firm to the end, then we can lose our salvation. That that it's up to me to keep my salvation. God might have saved me, but it's up to me to persevere. That it's up to, to me, but, but please, just for a second, if you don't have your Bibles, pull out your phone. If you don't have your phone, let us buy you a Bible. Uh, we're not going to buy you a phone, but we'll buy you a Bible. And look at this text. I need you to see this with your own eyes. I, I will be offended if I see anyone's eyes right now. All right? I'm just waiting to call someone out. Verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if. Now, we need to understand the argument here, the sentence structure here. You can look at me. It's okay. I saw a couple people look up and look back down. Like, oh, my gosh, don't call me. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence. Verse 14 makes the same argument. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence. Here's what's missing that would make the argument crystal clear for losing your salvation. For if we are his house, if we hold fast our confidence. We are his house if we are his house if, if we are his house. That, that word if, if you just change it a little bit, then it makes the, the argument pretty clear that you can lose your salvation. But what we see here is we are, we already have we are partakers of Christ. We have become his house. If indeed we hold fast. We can't put the cart before the horse. It doesn't say we will be. It says that we are. So the author here is saying that our perseverance in the faith shows that we already are saved. I read this quote last week, but let me read it one more time. The author of Hebrews and the rest of Scripture teaches that only those who persevere in faith will be saved and that all who have genuine faith will persevere. So if we don't persevere, and in our minds right now, I know that no one is thinking about yourself. Everyone is thinking about someone that we have seen fall away from the faith. Now, time and truth go hand in hand. I don't want to make any blanket statements up here, not knowing situation, what's going on, how long their situation has gone on. But if someone falls away from the faith, the logical conclusion based on Scripture isn't that they lost their own salvation, is that they were never saved to begin with. 
that their experience in the beginning, whatever their salvation experience was, and we're going to tease this out some all through all these points, whatever their experience was that led them to the point of salvation was not true and was not genuine, and that is what has led them to fall away. Because the perseverance of our faith shows that we are his house. And therefore, if we don't persevere, then we were never his house. So, so yesterday was my wife and I's 11th anniversary. It was fantastic. I don't know what you plan on doing or, or those that aren't married are going to celebrate on your 11th anniversary. Those that are married know that anything you thought about before you get married goes out the window because our 11th anniversary was at Waffle House. We had this great idea that we were going to go hike up in, uh, what was it called? Glacier National Park and it was going to be incredible and but my wife just had to be selfish and get a spinal cord injury. So we went to Waffle House together, and it was, fan- and it was great, mainly because we had no kids, and we didn't have to get syrupy fingers all over. Actually, I don't let our kids use syrup because I'm too OCD. But, but here's, here's the reality. Uh, our kids, our older two specifically, are asking a lot more questions about our relationship and marriage, and it's just really cute. And so, so I had to be honest with them and tell them uh, that Daddy was a fool, and even though my wife and I are high school sweethearts, I broke up with her twice in high school, because um, winners win, and I had to keep my options open. Summer is not the time to have a girlfriend. So got to sophomore year, got to that summer, broke it off, Right. Shirt's coming off. It's going to be great. That plan would not work for me now. But back then, I was a stud, right? Some of you lost hair. I just gained weight. That's what happened. Then junior year, same thing. Summer rolled around. I was like, mm, bye. I got to break up with her again. Now, I know, ladies, what you're thinking, why did you keep coming back, Bree? The grace of God. The grace of God. And what makes the matters worse is the fact that I've showed them, uh, I don't know why we did this, but I've showed them where I broke up with her the first time. So now when we're driving through coming, they're like, hey, that's the part where daddy broke up with mommy. And I'm like, yep, that was it, right there in the Kiwanis parking lot, right off uh, Pilgrim Mill Road. And so we, we joke about that, and we laugh about that. But, but here's the reality, that, that if we can take this silly analogy and put it into Scripture, did I break up with Bree? Did I break up with Brie? I mean, here, here's the question, because I fell out of love with her. Or did we break up because I had no idea what love was? I had no idea what commitment was. So did I break up with her twice, after eight months and then after four months, and watch her sit in my 92 Dodge Dakota with a V8 318 that was so fast? Yeah, I was more in love with my truck than my girlfriend at the time because I fell out of love with her because I didn't understand. Maybe it was an emotionalism that I got into the relationship and then I realized I shouldn't have been there. So, so in, in no other argument would we look at that moment and make our foundational belief. We would go back to the beginning and say, why did you actually start dating her? Same way with us in Christ. If people fall away from the faith, it isn't that you can lose your salvation. It's that your salvation was never genuine to begin with. Let let me read James 2.14, which will paint a better picture than that cheesy dating analogy. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, Be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, it does not have works, is dead. But some will say, 
You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Is James here saying that your works save you? No. But almost every writer in the New Testament would say that if you are saved, you will bear fruit. You will grow in that. Your works will show this original thing was true, was genuine. But if you don't grow in this, if you don't have works, then you don't have faith. So you cannot lose your salvation. Chances are you never had it to begin with. And the other side of that, so, so we're talking a lot about like what happens 10, 15, 20 years into your faith, but, but we can even go back the other side. If you have your Bibles, just flip back a few chapters, a few books to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter two, because I just want to see this. The other end, the perseverance of the faith is, is our total depravity, which Ephesians will lay out perfectly for us. Ephesians 2, because we have to understand how salvation begins, how salvation works, because if we understand that, then we'll see that we cannot lose it. Salvation is a gift from God. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 4 puts it this way. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now that's who we were. That's, if I'm talking to Christians right now, that's who you were before God radically saved you. And we'll read about that salvation in a second. But, but here's the question, and this is not tongue-in-cheek. This is not sarcasm. This is a genuine question that I need us to wrestle with in biblical language. Can a dead man choose life? Of course not. Can a dead man choose anything? Can a dead man say, it's cold in here. I want to get up. So because of the sins of Adam, as Paul would tell us, because of the sins that happened in that garden, now we are all dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses. Spiritually, we cannot choose life because a dead man cannot choose that. We are dead. And until we sit in this and wrestle with this and mourn in this, verse 4 will never be sweet. As John Owen says, till sin be bitter, grace not be sweet. Ephesians 2, 4, but God. So even though we were dead in our sin and trespasses, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which we has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. But it keeps going because... They know, Scripture knows, the writers know that if human beings, we can take credit for anything, we will. Verse 6, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. Everyone look at 2.8. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. The faith given to you to believe was a gift from God. The salvation was a gift from God. You did not save yourself. So the logical conclusion was that you can't unsave yourself. You cannot lose your salvation. It's not possible. So the writer here of Hebrews is not saying, if you do this, then you keep your salvation. If you don't do this, you will not keep your salvation. He's saying that if you persevere to the end, it shows that your salvation was true. If my marriage perseveres to the end, it shows that my commitment to my wife was true. If it doesn't, then what I said that day on the altar was hogwash, was not a real covenant, was not real vows. But if I do, if our marriage does, then I meant every word. And if our faith perseveres to the end, it means that salvation was true for us. So, that was my introduction. What then do we do in light of this? If our salvation is genuine from the start, we will persevere to the end. But we have to do something here. We have to do something with the Israelites that are being quoted. So let's look at verse 16, because we've talked a lot about you cannot lose your salvation, but, but what then happened to the Israelites? Let's look at verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt, led by Moses? Sorry, I'm back in Hebrews 3. You might be in Ephesians 2. We're back at Hebrews 3, 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now, we have to just see a few things here that, that if you're anything like me will make your head just explode. Because this is one of those passages, and, and the preacher, the author of Hebrews, included this because he wanted you to see that he's not talking about the world that fell into unbelief. He's not talking about those that had no excuse, that had not seen God do anything big, anything miraculous, anything like that. He's talking about the Israelites from 1.5 million to 2. All of those fell into unbelief. But here's what they saw with their own eyes. And this is what I just don't understand, but what at the end of the day brings me so much fear for us sitting in this room. Because here's what they saw. They saw the 10 plagues, right? Pharaoh, let my people go. No, I won't do that. 10 plagues come, the last one being the firstborn of, of human and animals killed unless there was the blood of the lamb over their, their doorframe. Finally, Pharaoh goes, okay, you've killed my son. Get out of here. The blood in the Nile, all that was just kind of bogus, but, but now this has gotten personal. Get out of here. So as they're on their way out of Egypt, 1.5 million people rolling deep out of the way of Egypt get to the Nile. Or excuse me, get to the Red Sea. And by this time, Pharaoh has changed his mind. He's going after him. The Red Sea splits. They go across. And here, here's just, okay, 
Just, just picture this. Just entertain me for a second because my imagination just runs amok. You saw this happen. You saw the sea split. You yourself, your feet, your toes walked across this dry land. You turn around and look behind you. Pharaoh's army is coming after you. The sea falls. Just, just curious, how, how long would that energize your faith? How long would you go, oh my goodness, you're never going to believe what my God did? A year, five years, ten years? Well, the Bible would tell us three days. Three days, and these people were already grumbling and complaining. Three days, they've already been deceived back into unbelief. Three days after seeing this miracle. So then they go out into the wilderness and literally bread falling from the heavens in the desert. Moses strikes a rock and water comes out. Miracle after miracle, they get the law from God. Things are going incredibly well. And two make it. Two. Two of them make it into the promised land because the rest, the rest of God's chosen people fell into unbelief so much so that the wrath of God was poured on them. It said, you will die here. You're not going to make it into my rest. You're not going to make it into the promised land because you have continually and constantly unbelieved in me. So with that context, look back up at verse 7. This will make a little bit more sense for us. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion or the day of testing in the wilderness. Now, rebellion and testing, real quick, I wasn't going to this, but this is just fascinating. If you read back into actual Psalm 95, not what is quoted here, they're quoting from the Septuagint, which is the Greek New Testament, right? Or Greek Old Testament, excuse me. So the word rebellion and the word testing, when you get into Psalm 95, those two words are going to be actual places because Moses named those places after the rebellion and after the testing that was taking place that he was so sick of what was happening that he actually named these places in the desert after rebellion and testing. So when you're reading Psalm 95, which I implore you to do, that's why those two words are going to look different, but they're the same words. Verse 9, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, church. They saw God's work for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they, will, they always go astray in their hearts and have not known my way. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, now, why are we highlighting this? Why is the author saying this? And what does this have to do about perseverance of the saints? Church, look right at me. It is possible, based on what we're reading, this isn't some psychological or, or sociological experiment. It is possible. Well, well let, me, let me take a step back. The exodus of the people of God was not strong enough, was not enough to save them, that they still wandered away. It is possible that your salvation was not genuine and you've been led into a life of unbelief. That you would think that the exodus of the people of God out of Egypt would have solidified them in their salvation. So the author is trying to get us to see, to be aware of this false 
exodus or this false salvation that's in our mind. Now, now let me be really clear because once I've just said that, you're probably thinking, oh, I see what's happening here. Anyone else singing Moana? I see what's happening here. Face to face with greatness. And I'm getting nervous because I'm going to have to be real straight with you. Here's what I'm not doing. Church, I'm not trying to guilt you into a second salvation, a second baptism so that our church numbers look great. I'm not preaching this sermon this morning so that we can have 100 baptisms next week and look like we're the greatest church ever. We didn't even know we were preaching this text when we picked Baptism Sunday. But I, as well as the author in Hebrews, labor over this truth that there are false converts sitting in this room right now And the least pastoral thing that this writer could do is encourage them in their fake faith. And the least pastoral thing I could do is to say, it's okay. That your exodus moment might not have been God's actual salvation for you. Because we see this magnificent exodus moment for them and they all, except for two, fell back into unbelief. And so I'm worried primarily because, primarily because of where we live. Here's what happens. And I can be honest because I'm 99% sure. I'll find out when I get to heaven if this is what actually happened to me, but I'm 99% sure. Uh, I was baptized and saved when I was nine. Anyone else nine? Boom. All right. Three people. But... And, and I, I'll spare the details. I, I, I don't mind sharing them, but I'll spare them for now. Uh, it wasn't until an event my senior year in high school, and my wife can attest because I've known her since freshman year. It wasn't until an event my senior year in high school where my life actually looked any different for the gospel. So from the time I was nine to the time I was 17, here's what I think happened And church, please hear me because I think this is rampant all over the Bible Belt. Jesus was my Savior, but he was not my Lord. That I understood clearly, and I could explain the gospel, and it was a good thing, and and I was all about church. We were there. I might show up a little hungover, but my mom didn't know, and she's not here right now, but mom's going to listen to the podcast. Crap, that's not good. Mom, I never showed up to church on over. Don't worry. Right? But, but I believed, the, I did. I really believed that Jesus was who he says he was. But was I ever interested in giving my entire life over, submitting to the lordship of Jesus? No, Jesus was just a good guy. And I'd go to church and I'd kiss my mama and everything would be great. And I knew when to raise my hands and, and I was considered a leader in my youth group. And, but I had no interest in submitting to the lordship. I just wanted what I wanted. So it's Jesus plus my desires, Jesus plus my wants, Jesus plus my future. But it wasn't until my senior year where all of that disappeared. I said, no, no, Jesus is my Lord. God has saved me here. So I, I don't know. And this is where, I mean, I don't think when I get to heaven I'm really going to be concerned with this. But, but I do want to know between 9 and 17, if I would have died, what would have happened? 
I do, I, when I was in fifth grade, we rolled a Jeep, and it was a really bad in, accident. I didn't actually get injured, but, but things like that happened. I mean, what, what would have happened if I would have got ejected and rolled over, and would I have gone to heaven? I, I, I don't know. But I have no doubt that I submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ when I was 17. So here's what happens in Bible Belt South. Everyone thinks Jesus is a good guy. But, but my fear is that is a false exodus. That that is a false salvation because you never actually submitted to the Lordship and you cannot have one without the other. So, so let, me, let me read this. Second Peter 1, 11. 2 Peter 1, 11. And this is just one of the litmus of verses that I could have picked. Really, it's all over First and Second Peter. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the internal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The scripture will not distinguish the two, church. You cannot have one without the other. Jesus cannot be your Savior without being your Lord. That is a deception on us to have our, or eat our cake and have it too. To keep our control, to keep our power. Jesus is my Savior, but I'm still going to call the shots in my life. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He's a great guy, but ultimately I'm the Lord of my life. And that deception, church, will lead to the un. Belief and, and here at Luke 22, here's how Jesus prayed. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. So true lordship salvation looks like you considering the will of God over the will of self. That's what it means to submit. That's what lordship is. That Jesus not only saves you, but he rules and reigns over you. And that is a delight because we have a good father. But remember, and I'll say this again, this was written to the church in Hebrews. This was to the Hebrew people, the church in Rome. This was written to a church like us, presumably filled with believers. And he's saying, don't be deceived with unbelief, because there might be some that aren't saved. And, and here, I mean, just, I, I've been in ministry long enough. I've preached at enough camps. I've been a youth pastor. I have seen my Facebook riddled with, riddled with guys and girls that I've seen, I've cried with. I've seen them publicly confess the Lord just to go live a sinful life just to continue to do what they want, to turn their back on God. And based on what the author of Hebrews would say, they didn't lose their salvation. That was emotionalism to begin with. But that salvation was not genuine. That exodus was not genuine. Jesus might be Savior, but he's not their Lord. Here's what John Piper says about this. How can you fall away if you're never a partaker in Christ? The answer is that there are many ways to partake the nearness and power of God without trusting in him or hoping in him or loving him for who he is. Let me read that one more time. 
How can you fall away if you are never a partaker in Christ? The answer is that there are many ways to partake in the nearness and the power of God without trusting in Him, hoping in Him, or loving Him for who He is. And Matthew 7 would, would bring the words of John Paper to life. Uh, that's heretical. Let me flip that over. Matthew, John Piper's words are solidified in Matthew 7. That's a better way to say that. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name or do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus gives us a framework for this conversation that you can be near Jesus but not do the will of the Father. That you can have that closeness with him but still be living a life of unbelief. And this is terrifying. This is worrisome for us to discuss. So, so let me just level with you, church. One of the things that I have to cognitively do when I stand up here and preach on Sundays is not assume away your salvation. Because there's a, there's a part of me that wants to assume you showed up to church, you're a Christian, you're a believer, this is awesome. But Scripture would not allow me to do that. So I have to coach myself. I have to critically think through, it is better for you as I'm preaching not to assume that any of you are believers. Not to assume your testimony for you because you might have been like me. You might currently be like me that Jesus is your Savior but not your Lord. And the reason being is the Bible often speaks, especially in the New Testament, about false brethren, false brothers and sisters. 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they wouldn't have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. So God's miracles can't sustain you, or else that would have happened in the wilderness. Admitting God as Savior cannot save you without submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And here's what I think I know. Here's conjecture, so I'll, I'll walk away from the Bible real quick. Just This is based on my experience. I knew, especially in my high school days, that I was playing games with the church and I was playing games with the Lord. I just knew it. I knew that I was living a life of duplicity. I knew it when I was going to parties, when I was doing what I wanted to. I knew it. And every now and then, I would be convicted of sin just to go right back into sin. But that conviction never lasted because ultimately I wanted what I wanted more than submitting to what the Lordship of Jesus Christ would mean for me in my life. So I ran from it. I, I knew that I was duplicitous in my thinking and in my belief. And so here's my assumption. There are some in this room that know you're just playing games. And, and I'm not saying this, please, please hear me. Because one of the biggest fights in my marriage the first three years was everything that I would say would sound harsh and critical. 
my wife would call, what, what would you call me? Oh, I can't say that in church, never mind. My, my wife would call me names because of how I would speak. Just kidding, she's so sweet. She would never do that. So, so you might hear my tone, you might see my face, and think that I'm being overly critical or mean or bullying you, but I am genuinely worried and concerned for you, that my heart breaks for you. Because what we're about to see is this word today. Because this is all we have. And I long for you to enter into the rest of Jesus Christ, not only in eternity, but now. So my heart breaks that we might be playing games in this room. That you might be deceiving yourself to think that you can have both and, and it's killing you. And the satisfaction isn't there for you because it was never designed to be. We weren't designed to be worshiping the created. We were designed to worship the creator. That's what satisfies. So the more and more and more and more things that might satisfy one day will never satisfy. But we just keep playing these games over and over again. So, so what then do we do? I would plead with you, don't be like Israel that doesn't get to enter the rest because eventually God's going to say, that's it. You've played games for far too long. So, so, so let's land the plane. Look with me at verse 12. What do we need then to not deceive ourselves? What do we need to persevere to the end? What do we need to fight off this temptation. And scripture is very clear here. It's another reason I just love the book of Hebrews. It doesn't leave us guessing for the conclusions. Verse 12, take care, brothers, brethren, brothers and sisters, the family of God, take care, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort or encourage one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. We share in Christ now, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So there's, there's three main pillars here that I want us to see. Today, take care and encourage one another. Today, Catch the urgency here. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next year, today. We need this today. Church, I need you today. Church, you need me today to, to hide from the temptation, to fought off the deceitfulness that is so prevalent in our hearts. We need each other today. This is urgent. This is not something to push on. Today, take care. So what then does it look like for us to take care? Just jot these scriptures down real quick. I want you to study these on your own time. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. What fruit is your life producing? Are you affirmed in your salvation by those around you? 1 John 2, 3 through 4. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
We are not perfect, church. We do not keep all his commandments. We have a life of repentance. But if you have no desire, no hunger, no thirst to keep his commandments, I would talk to you about that because the truth of God might not be in you. First John 3, 18 through 19, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this that we shall know that we are the truth. We are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Take care. Ask yourself the hard questions. Examine your life. Be in community with those that can help you wrestle through this. Take care. Jesus, your Savior, or is he your Savior and Lord? And lastly, we see here, and I wish I could spend 10 hours here. Encourage one another. Encourage one another. The author of Hebrews, the preacher of Hebrews says, encourage one another. Now just, just snap back into the wilderness with me real quick as we're beginning to end. Snap back. How would that have looked different if after three days in the wilderness, instead of grumbling and complaining, encouragement and songs sung out? How different would that have been? Any pessimists in here? Any cynics in here? Yeah, Mark Smith, I saw that. I believe you, Mark. I know you're a negative Nancy back there. How much different would Israel have looked if it wasn't the negative Nancys, if it wasn't the pessimists that reigned, if it was the encouragement that reigned? How much different would the story of the people of God in the promised land have looked if they were encouraging, admonishing, supporting one another? Colossians 3, really the entire chapter, but let me just read Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of God, or excuse me, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. There's some of you in this room that have that gifting. And thank you. Thank you for encouraging. Thank you for keeping us going. But we all need to grow in this. This is why we have family groups so we can sit around a table together, we can study the Word of God together, and we can pray together. We can admit in this space, I'm not okay, I need some encouragement, I need some help here. And the New Testament doesn't let us get away with this. There's 59 one another's in the New Testament. Love one another, serve one another, take care of one another, support one another. So the New Testament church is designed with this idea that we must, we must encourage each other. This is why, and this afternoon, right after church, about 1230, I've got to take my family home and then come back. We're going to have a membership class. And again, this isn't for us to have this incredible membership. And No, this is for us to know who is in. Who is in? Who's going to encourage me? Who do I need to encourage? In my office, I have our membership list hanging up right next to my head. Well, it's not there right now. I took it down, but, but I promise you I will not be a liar. This week, it'll be there because it's in my laptop sleeve. That's how serious I'm taking membership. But every time I get to the office, the first thing I do is I go through that list and I pray for everyone on that list. I encourage. I want to love. The elders want to support. And also, I know who to call. When I need encouragement, when I need support, it's the ones that have mutually said, we're in this thing together. This is why membership matters. 
But let me, as I land the plane, let me throw this last thought out there. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, he throws this idea about apathy out that, that really has just gripped me since, ever since I've read it. And here's the thought. If you're not familiar with screw tape letters, there's an older demon discipling a younger demon on how to get the Christians to fall away from their faith. And here's what the older tells the younger, and I'm going to paraphrase. The greatest trick of the enemy is not to get people to fall into some kind of evil. And the thought behind it is that if we fall into evil, we might come back. The greatest trick of the enemy is to get us to fall into apathy. Because once we're there, chances are we'll never come back. So Satan's greatest trick for us, and, and here's just what we need to remember as we're thinking about this idea of considering our salvation. Typically the argument goes, well, I'm not getting drunk on the weekends, and I don't like snort heroin and all that. Do you snort heroin? No one's going to answer that. Bryson says no. Thanks, Bryson. Appreciate that. There's the truth here. So I don't do drugs. I've never, like, shot a guy. Uh, only on, like, video games. Like, I'm a, I'm a good guy. Yeah, I might not be, like, doing all this for the church and doing all this for the kingdom. And, but, but, like, at least I'm not doing this. C.S. Lewis, in his book, said, no, no, no that, that is the most dangerous rain, lane to run in is this apathetic middle ground. So church, I want to ask you as we end, where are you? Where are you? Because we know temptation and deceit to lead us into unbelief is knocking on our doors constantly. Are Are you being held captive in your unbelief right now? Have you been playing games with the church and with Christ for too long? Where are you right now? And this is not a shame thing. This is a celebration thing. That if the Lord is working on you, it's for your good. It's not to guilt you, to hurt you. It's so that you can rest in his finished work on the cross. That is the joy of the gospel. So the big fear in Hebrews 3 is that the people would follow the, the myth of Israel and lead a life of unbelief that leads them to not entering the rest of God. And my fear here is that some of us are leading the myth of unbelief that's not allowing us to rest in the finished work of God. And I worry for you. So I'm going to pray. If you need to talk, please, let's, let's talk. I'll be in the back. We can hang out. We can pray together. We can talk. But, but church, let us quit playing games. Today, let us take care, encourage one another, because sin is trying to destroy us. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you took the sins of, Eve, of Israel and the potential sins of the Hebrew people and you've allowed us to chew on it and meditate on it and dwell on it this morning. 
Father, we know that it is so easy to bite on the temptation of disbelief. We know that it's so easy to submit to our own lordship, to think that we are the end-all, be-all, not you. It's so easy to be deceived, to continue to tell ourselves things that we want to hear so that we don't have to face the hard truth. And so this morning, Spirit, we're, we're praying that you would test our hearts. God, would you speak to us right now in this moment? Would you reveal to us, Father, what's actually going on in our hearts? Have we submitted to the lordship of your Son? Or do we just think Jesus is a really good Savior, but not our Lord? Have we entered into the rest of eternal life? Or are we still doing things our own way? God, let us learn from our forefathers. Let us learn from Israel. Let us learn from the Hebrews. And let us submit to your lordship. Now let your death on the cross and your resurrection not be in vain. But let it matter for our souls. So church, in in this moment, I'm just going to have a time of quiet for us to consider, ponder, and test. And I do not want you to deceive yourself or lie to yourself. In this moment, I want you to listen I want you to ask, have I submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? If not, we would love to pray with you. If so, let me remind you of verse 13. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Let us be the church. Jesus, thank you for your life. Thank you for your son's death on the cross, the atonement that it brings so that we can be sons and daughters of you. It's your name we pray. Amen.